0: This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, check out our website, www.anchorchurch.com.au. Hey, all, uh, thank you so much for joining in to our digital gathering. My name is Arnaldo. I'm one of the pastors at Anchor Church Southwest, and I want to send a huge shout out uh, to both our Anchor City family and our South. West, Southwest family. And if you're visiting with us, uh, we love that you're here with us. Um, and we'd love to meet you. We'd love to get to know you. Now, of course, we can't do that in person. But if you can drop us a line somewhere, connect with us, uh, drop us a line in the, the comments, if you're watching this on YouTube later on, or if you're online with us at 10 a.m. or 2 p.m. on Sunday, let us know in the chat where you're from. We are excited to have you with us. Now, we are in the second week of a really exciting journey through the book of Exodus. We're taking about 14 weeks to travel through. Now, there was a lot of background information that uh, that I gave last week. And so uh, if you missed that, that'll be on our YouTube channel or our podcast. I encourage you to go ahead, take that up and uh, sort of get orientated to the book. Uh, but each week, we're going to be covering large portions of text, large portions of narrative. And unfortunately and inevitably, there's going to be just some text that we can't do a deep dive in. And so I want to encourage you to take up the book of Exodus in your own devotional time as you gather even digitally in your gospel communities to ask those questions. Uh, but if there are any questions that you may have... Uh, feel free to drop me a line, arnaldo at anchorchurch.com.au and I'll do my best to wrestle with you through that text. Now, with that said, uh, let me pray for us this morning or afternoon. Father, we thank you uh, for your goodness to us. We thank you that even as um, this isn't live, you are the God of tomorrow. You are the God of next week, uh, that we can uh, speak with you and you are here today And yet you are present in the tomorrow. And we thank you for who you are and how you've been faithful to us. And we just ask that you would be with us. Uh, Even as lockdowns have been extended and, um, uh, you know, we, some of us may be experiencing some some financial pressures, uh, relational pressures, uh, um, stay-at-home pressures, homeschool pressures. Uh, We just pray that you'd be with us, Lord, uh, in this time. And help me uh, then to forget the things that are not going to be helpful and help me to remember the things that will be. And I pray for those who are far from you, Jesus, those who may not consider themselves believers. Uh, pray that you would bring them near uh, to you now uh, by the power of your spirit. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Now I've got a couple things uh, here uh, written down. Uh, Cardano. Uh, Ethereum. Bitcoin, Dogecoin, Tether. Uh, Now, these are just a few of the things that I know almost nothing about. Uh, So I'm not going to come up here and try to wax eloquent on a Sunday about them. Uh, But whether you've invested in some form of cryptocurrency or regret the fact uh, that you didn't get in early enough, I know one thing, that these things can be incredibly volatile. Uh, Now, again, I'm no economist, I'm no cryptocurrency expert, uh, but I do understand uh, that this new form of currency is incredibly volatile due to the fact that it's so new, it's so recent, but also it's mostly decentralized. And like anything else on the market, it rises and it falls and sometimes at breakneck speeds and this experience of uh, volatility is, is not new to our age. In fact, it's something that many people in the ancient, uh, in the ancient Near East, uh, the place and time that our story in Exodus takes place, would have experienced. But not with cryptos, of course, uh, but with their gods. Something that we need to understand about the Old and New Testaments are the religious settings, the cultural contexts, uh, that these texts emerge from uh, the world in which Exodus was written about was a world of polytheism uh, where many gods would be worshipped or or some people practice something called henotheism, where even as we admit that there were many gods and believed in many gods, our tribe, our people worshipped one god primarily and and more than that these these gods like cryptocurrency today were incredibly volatile as a worshipper of said god you really didn't know what the flavor of the day was did you appease this god was she still angry with you was he happy with you how were how were this year's crops going to turn out have i have i done enough will will my health be blessed will i have children uh, these questions would have been explicitly tied to your and your tribe's ability to rightly worship and appease your God or gods. And the reality is you never really knew where you stood or whether on a whim your God was going to shift the goalposts on you. What worked one day may not work the next depending on the mood that your God was in. But today, as we continue in the book of Exodus, what we're going to learn is this, that when God reveals his name to Moses, he decides to highlight his steadfast commitment to remain faithful to and with his people. I want to say that again, that when God reveals his name to Moses in our text today, He decides to highlight his steadfast commitment to remain faithful to and with his people. And this is going to be revealed in the context of a lengthy back and forth between Israel's God and the reluctant prophet and national liberator, Moses. I want to read to us from the book of Exodus, just the first verse here uh, to start off with. Exodus 3 1 says this. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father in law, Jethro. That is, we learned that his name in the previous chapter was uh, Rayul, Re- uh, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, 40 years have passed at this point from where we left off last week in chapter 2. And if you remember, Moses was exiled, a fugitive of the law for committing, uh, committing murder back in Egypt. And at this point, he's about 80 years old, married. We learn later with a couple kids living the quiet, desert-esque life, you know, the kind of place you go to get away. Uh, and he's a shepherd. And it's, it's interesting because he's been tending his father-in-law's uh, flocks for probably decades now, and the prince of Egypt, at one point, is now tending sheep, or whatever cattle uh, he, he had. And interestingly enough, to be a shepherd in Egyptian culture was seen as detestable. And so his fall, Moses's fall, truly is great. But while he's out with Jethro's uh, sheep, he arrives at this place called Horeb. Now we learn that this is a mountain from the next line where the narrator calls it the mountain of God. And what we learn later in the story and in these coming uh, weeks and months is that this mountain would be the mountain that God would give the tablets of the commandments to Moses. This right here, what's happening in today's story is Mount Sinai, but here it's called Horeb. And I don't think that's by mistake. See, Horeb means uh, wasteland, to be dry, to be in ruins, to lay waste. And you see, it's in this place, the place of nothing, the place of wasteland, the place uh, of ruin, where God decides to reveal himself to Moses. In fact, in the Old Testament, you'd be hard pressed To find a place where a greater revelation takes place. The very name of God is revealed. And it's not in a palace. It's not in a temple. It's not anywhere you would expect the God of the universe to reveal himself. And yet, here we are. And before we even get into the story, I want to pause here for a moment and imagine with you where God may be wanting to reveal himself to you personally. Where is the wasteland in, in your life? What, what parts of your own story have you buried because it is a place of ruin? Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe it's trauma from your childhood, your relationships, your, uh, your mental health, uh, physical pain, chronic pain that you may be experiencing. We often begin to ask, where is God when we encounter places of ruin? And it's a good question. And the answer evidently here in our story is that God is right there in the place of waste, in the place of wasteland, of ruin. He's right there in the middle of the hard things of life. Now, that was for free. I want to get back into into the story. So Moses, 80 years old, chilling with his father-in-law's sheep, Comes up to this mountain of ruin, of, of waste. And then this happens. Follow with me in the text from verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned? And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And so I wonder, you know, can you transport yourself there? Moses, 40 years as a shepherd, not necessarily, I can imagine, an exciting life. An 80-year-old man with a dark past and and maybe, maybe even regret you know, regret that he he may have not done enough to help. Maybe he could have used his political influence to alleviate the oppression of his people. Maybe he could have used his family ties to help his people escape from uh, Pharaoh's heavy hand of burden and slavery. You know, I imagine him possibly the way that I imagine Oscar Schindler. If you remember the movie Schindler's list where throughout his life, as a member of the Nazi party, he was able to save around 1,200 Jews from being exterminated. But at the end of the movie, excuse me, at the end of the movie, uh, there's this poignant scene where he is, he's commiserating about how much more he could have done to save others from the gas chambers. He looked at his gold watch and he cried out, this could have been three more people that I could have saved and a gold pin. This could have saved more. He lives at the end of his life, even after saving 1,200 Jewish people that were on their way to the death camp, he didn't do enough. He lives with a deep regret of of not doing more. And while this text doesn't indicate that that was Moses's frame of mind, I, I wonder, I wonder if we enter into the story and we find this 80-year-old man living in regret of what could have been, what may have been. You remember with me last week that he murdered an Egyptian because he struck down a Hebrew slave. And this, this righteous indignation rises up in, in him and he ends up murdering the Egyptian. This, this sense of, even as it has gone wrong in that sense, this sense of justice. I wonder, as an 80-year-old man, where, where that's sitting for Moses. And then he encounters this strange fire, a bush that's not consumed by the fire. And when God gets His attention, God speaks. And throughout this narrative, this this mysterious figure is called by a few names. There's there's something that Moses. It's not just a flame, but there's some there's a person in the fire, in the flame. And this this person, this this apparition or this messenger is called the angel of the Lord. Or uh, later on, he's simply just called the Lord. Or or later on, he's called God, meaning that or rather whom, whom, God, whom Moses is encountering here is none other than the creator of the universe, the almighty. Like he, he, he calls him, he, he calls Moses to come close, but, but not, not too close. And he says, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, I'm here. And later on, he says, whoa, not, not that close. And throughout the book of Exodus, we're going to experience this. The love and the holiness of God in this beautiful dance. God calling us near, but because of his otherness, his holiness and our inability to withstand it and live, he asks his people to keep a safe distance. And we'll see this theme over and over again. But Moses now with Birkenstocks off, sees this figure in the midst of a burning bush and is told that he is the God of his father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And immediately, Moses hides his face for fear of God's ferocious holiness. And sensing his fear, God speaks again, which begins this this long dialogue between him and Moses. And this dialogue is God and Moses going back and forth, back and forth, as Moses presents five objections to God calling him to partner with him in the liberation of his people. And this is the first objection. Objection number one, who am I? Who am I? And this is the first of the five rounds between God and Moses. And Moses objects five times uh, to God calling him to be his agent of redemption and renewal. And before we get into them, I just want to notice just just one feature. God does not need Moses. Let's just get that off. Like, let's just get that off of our chest. Let's get that on the table. Let's just admit, God needs nothing. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. God doesn't need Moses. God is in need of nothing. Absolutely nothing. God is all-powerful. God is altogether awesome in glory. God is altogether lovely in His might. We, we, we often forget this. We can forget this. But God, in all of His majesty, in all of His glory, in all of His brilliance, in all of his power, chooses to partner with Moses. And even when Moses refuses, God doesn't relent. We can learn a lot about how to argue with God from Moses. So God begins the way chapter two ended, with God seeing the affliction of his people, with God knowing their suffering. And this is what Uh, is said in verse seven of chapter three, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, God is deeply committed to justice. God is deeply committed to himself and his covenant with Abraham the covenant that through Abraham the entire world would be blessed. God is deeply committed to seeing his creation project of a world that flourishes and pushes back the chaos be brought about. And he's deeply committed to doing this with and through a people. This is what we need to understand. God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. He is the one true, free being in the universe, and yet he chooses to bind himself to us, to work in us, to work through us. A partnership with humanity where humans would rule and reign on this earth as his image bears. Genesis 3 may have changed the route, but not the destination. And now God is ready to move, but seemingly only through Moses. And so he sends Moses in verse chapter 10 when he says this, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And like, uh, Moses is like, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, you said you came down. Uh, So that you would bring Israel up out of Egypt and to bring them to a land of milk and honey of flourishing and abundance. Why are you throwing me into the mix? You know, and you can imagine Moses bringing out his ESV and showing God that uh, he is the one who's doing it in in verse 8. Verse 8, you know, simply says this. This is God speaking and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. It says nothing about Moses. God, you said you would do this. Like, why are you bringing me into this mess? And here comes Moses' first objection to his participation in the mission of God. In verse 11, he says this. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Like, who am I though? And this would be natural, wouldn't it? I mean, for the very, you know, it'd be natural for this to be the very first thing to think or, or to say, who am I to go up against this mammoth of Egypt, this dynasty of power, this machine of oppression? Who am I? And God asks Moses to trust him. Trust him because it's not so much about who you are, Moses, but about who I am. And this is, and this God, as we see here, and we'll see in just a few verses more clearly, is a God who is a with you God, a God who doesn't leave your side, a God who is committed to not just send you out with some uh, ancillary resources, but to be with you as you go. You know, it's interesting here that God doesn't begin to pop off, of all, you know, about all the things that He just loves about Moses, right? Like. Come on, son, you, you, you got this, right? Moses, you got this. You know, this shepherding uh, that you've been doing for 40 years, it's equipped you, it's prepared you to take on the king of Egypt. And plus, listen, Moses, you know the language, you know the culture, you were raised there, um, and I'm sure you still got a couple connections in the palace to get through. And none of that. It's straight up not about Moses. But I will be with you. And at this point, we think, okay, maybe this is enough. Uh, you know, maybe this is enough for Moses to say, okay, I sign up to the plan. I, I sign up to the, the renewal uh, that you have, the redemption, the, the emancipation of your people that you have. I, I'll do it. But there's a second objection. The second objection is this, is who are you? He says this in verse 13. He says, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? All right, so, so Moses says, okay, okay, great, great, you're with me, you're with me, great, comforting, but who are you? Like, who, like, who are you, are you Really? Uh, like, like, I know you're the God of my father, of, of Abraham, of Isaac, and, and Jacob, the God of Genesis, the powerful God that speaks creation into existence, but who are you? Like, if they ask me who, who sent me, what do I say? You know, are you in the directory? How do, how do we get in contact with you if we need to? And, and by this point... I wonder if I were God, and that's a bit of a ridiculous scenario to to role play. But if I were God, I wonder if this is the point where I would have short-circuited a fuse. Like, you know, I told you who I am, Abraham. Uh, I told you, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. In fact, in this section alone, God identifies himself six times, five times, Uh, with the reality that he is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. And you'd think that he was trying to get a message across. But God, being patient as he is, allows Moses to continue. But in verse 14, in verse 14, he reveals his personal name to Moses. The first time, this is the first time in scripture that God himself, utters these words, and they're this. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. I am who I am. God cannot and will not be named by another. And if God has to name himself, the self-sustained creator and sustainer and governor of the universe, then he will simply be I am. Now, the way we interpret this is interesting because we can do it in a few ways. And this is what it would uh, look like in in the Hebrew. And we're reading uh, from right to left, unlike English English left to right and so this these these uh these consonants uh, that spell out uh, Yahweh I am who I am And this translation uh, it can vary uh, between a present being or a future being let me let, let me say what i mean this can be translated the way that the esv translates it which is a very good one i am who i am or Uh, Possibly uh, 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 another way uh, to phrase it is in the future. I will be who I will be. And this is more so a character trait than it is a proper name. But this is simply how God decides to name himself. Who are you? What's your name? I will be who I will be. I will be tomorrow who I am today. And whenever we read uh, in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, a a capitalized Lord that looks like this, this is the name Yahweh. Versus capital L with lowercase O-R-D, Lord, which is uh, the translation from a word Adonai, which means uh, Lord in in the way that you would say Master. And what this is, this is a declaration of consistency. This is a declaration of faithfulness. This is God in a culture that was marked by faithless and fickle gods, Yahweh. This God, the God of Israel, would be faithful, would be constant, would be decisive, would not be capricious, but would be true, would be the same, the same The same. The way that he would treat one generation is the way that he would go on to treat the next. And this is going to come out especially in chapter 34 when we explore God's loyal love. But here, wrapped up in this name, is this idea of being unmovable, unshakable, of God being faithful. And this reality will mark the rest of the biblical story and will be the benchmark on all other interactions. This name right here. Right here. This is the lens through which we must read the rest of Israel's erratic history. And the hinge to this entire section uh, is what we said earlier, which is this, that when God reveals his name to Moses, he decides to highlight what? Not, Not his power necessarily, Uh, not even his goodness, but his consistency. He decides to highlight his steadfast commitment to remain faithful to and with his people. Now, I love the way that biblical commentator, Terence Fratham, he puts it. He says this, God will be God. He will be God with and for the people at all times and places. The formulation of Yahweh, this name, the formulation suggests a divine faithfulness to self. Wherever God is being God, God will be the kind of God God is. I love that. I love love that, that. Wherever God is being God, he will be God. Israel need not be concerned with divine arbitrariness or capriciousness. God can be counted on to be who God is. God will be faithful. I love that. And verses 15 to 22, it, it's, it's, it's Yahweh telling Moses what exactly to tell the elders of Israel when he returns to Egypt to proclaim the good news of their emancipation. And yet, when we make the turn to chapter 4, Moses Persists. He persists in his reluctance to be taken up into the mission of this faithful God and turns his gaze not toward himself and not toward God, but the people he sent to. Because the third objection of Moses to being sent by God is this. Who are they? Who are they? Moses says this in uh, um, chapter four, verse one. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or, or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord, that is Yahweh, did not appear to you. And Moses turns right from himself and the one who is commissioning him to the people he is commissioned to. Fine, he says, Now I have a name, but they won't listen. And from verses 2 to 9, God makes Moses' ordinary shepherd's crook into a wonder working agent itself and gives Moses three signs to perform in front of the elders of Israel's back in Egypt. God's power and control over nature by making his staff into a snake and then back into a staff again. God's power and control over sickness and the body as Moses contracts leprosy only to have it healed instantly and the pouring of water from the Nile on dry ground and it turning into blood. And God says, when you go to these elders, the elders of Israel, do these signs that they would believe you. And so listen, at this point, surely, this is a surefire plan. No way that Moses has anything else against Yahweh's plan to critique. Like, like you, you know who you are now? Like, I'm with you. That's what matters. I am who I am. I'm constant. I'm faithful. I'm going to give you signs to, to do in front of the, uh, the Israelites who, who you feel are not going to listen. But here we go again. And this time, uh, he doesn't go to something else, but he just remixes the first one. Because his fourth objection is, who am I again? The remix. Exodus 4.10 says this. But Moses said to Yahweh, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And now whether Moses has a speech impediment or some kind of stutter, we will never know. But what we do know is that whatever fault he finds in himself, whatever fault he finds in his speech, whether that is a real fault or or perceived, whatever impediment he thinks he has is no impediment to the mission of God. And Yahweh reassures him again that this, that he is the one who's in control of all things. Verse 11 says this, Then Yahweh said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? And God is saying this, I'm in control of all these things. You don't think that I know that you have a speech impediment? Do you think that somehow that your stuttering is going to catch me off guard, Moses? You, know, you can imagine God saying, ah oh, man, the Midianites where you've been dwelling for 40 years. They don't have, you know, they didn't have universal health cover like the way these Australians do and, and Moses wasn't able to get his 10 free sessions with the speechy. And so let's hit abort on this plan to renew the world, to emancipate the Hebrews. Let's just, let's just forget about it all because you have something of a stutter. Man, but Yahweh... We can imagine at this point, we don't need to imagine, because at this point, he's getting a little bit agitated with Moses. And in fact, in verse 12, he says, now, therefore, go. And it isn't sort of this gentle, therefore, go. This is is marked by impatience. Moses is beginning at this point, quite frankly, to get on God's nerves. Imagine that. And still, Moses doesn't relent. Because there's one final objection. And listen, it's got to be the weakest out of the five. He says basically this. Listen, just no. After all this, one would think Moses is beginning to feel the agitation. Maybe the fire you know, out of the bushes is getting brighter or, or hotter. I'm not sure. But, but Moses doesn't pick up on any of the social cues here. Because after all that, the promise of God's faithfulness, after the signs, after assurance, after assurance, Moses is like, listen, just know. He says this in verse 13. But he said, this is Moses, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Like you you can sense his desperation, like he's running out of reasons, to try to get God to choose someone else. Like, and I can't speak well. They're not going to listen to me. And if they do, like, they're going to ask who sent me. I don't know your name or your address. Like, I don't know how to contact you. And at the end of it, it's just, listen, just send someone else. And then for the very first time in Scripture, this was wild When, when I learned this as I studied this. For the very first time in Scripture, up until this point, God is never said to be angry. But here, in the very next verse, God gets angry. Literally, the text reads, and God's nose got hot. It grew hot. His nostrils, his nose got hot. And it was a Hebrew idiom that meant God got angry. And it's interesting that God's response to the sin to the decay, to the chaos, in the book of Genesis, was more marked by sadness than by anger. And it's not until this exchange with Moses that the text says God got angry. His nose got hot. I mean, you think about the betrayal in the garden. You think about the murder of Abel, the boasting, the proud boasting of Lamech, You think about the flood and the sin of Noah, the injustice of Sodom and Gomorrah, the faithlessness of the patriarchs on and on and on. And not once does our text ever say that God got angry. And yet it's here after this exchange and these five objections from Moses that God's nose burns red hot. And what is his response to his own anger? All right, I'm out. I'm done. I'm off. I'm off the team. You're off the team. I'm going to go find somebody else who's not going to frustrate me the way you've been frustrating me. No. Out of his anger, he doesn't smite Moses, but he makes a concession for him. By saying, all right, fine, 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 fine. We'll call your brother Aaron. He knows how to speak well. And this section of our story ends with God having the last word. Moses may have at this point, man, just tapped out out of exhaustion, exhausted from his verbal wrestling match with the creator of the universe. Moses, the murderer, the wanderer, the the shepherd, would become the great liberator of the people of God. Moses would go head to head with the powers of Egypt. It will be a battle between Moses and Pharaoh, and at a deeper level, a battle between the God of Israel and the gods of Egypt, these powers and principalities which once stood in the council of God, but who have fallen and been given jurisdiction over Egypt. This is the story that is about to unfold in the rest of the book. But what's the aftermath? The rest of the chapter from uh, verse 18 till the end speak uh, about, about the aftermath when Moses finally returns to Egypt. And this chapter closes and we have Moses heading back, heading back to Egypt with Aaron meeting him at that very same mountain, Mount Horeb. Later on, we'll call it Mount Sinai. And he heads back with Aaron and his family to confront The injustice is done against the people of Israel. And as they arrive in Egypt, they recount all of the things to the people still in bondage, to the elders of Israel, and they believe. And the final note before the project of liberation begins, ends like this in verse 31. And the people believed. And when they had heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. And thus, salvation, redemption, restoration is near. They know that God has seen their affliction and knows that their plight is what it is, the heaviness of the burden that they've been carrying. And they know now that God has sent Moses to redeem them out of the clutches of Pharaoh. And what do they do? They worship. They worship. Redemption here, emancipation here, the the prelude is worship. What a story. What an exchange And if there's anything, if there's anything that I want us as a church family to take away from this, is this. And even if you're on the fringes of the family, listen, even if right now you may be awakening to Jesus, this is God's call for you too. That you are called to partner with God in the renewal of all things. You are called to partner with God in the renewal of all things. This may not mean that you become a national liberator of an oppressed people group, but it does mean that wherever we find injustice in God's world and we can help it, we're called to do so with the so- with, with the resources that God gives us. And one of the things that we must correct in our world is the reality that many people, even many people on our own block, haven't heard the good news of Jesus's liberation, that will encompass one day both body and spirit. The reality that in Jesus, death no longer has the final word. The reality that in the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension of King Jesus, in that is found our redemption from Satan and sin and our false selves. See, you are called to partner with God in the renewal of all things by sharing both bread and gospel. But we struggle. We struggle just like Moses. His objections are our objections. One of the uh, objections that I often hear uh, from people about sharing the gospel verbally, particularly is this. I don't know enough. And the cute thing is that we believe that it depends on what we know that it depends on our charisma, that it depends on us. And even while we're called to partner with God in this, it depends wholly on the transforming spirit of God, not us. Because this is the good news, that God is with you. This is the good news, that it's this God, the God who is the I am who I am, the I will be who I will be God. That, who, that it is That's who is with you. We are all, all of us, called to be kings and queens of this earth as we push back the chaos in our own lives and in the world around us. We are called to be culture makers. We are all priests of God to the world. We are all temples of God mediating his presence to the world that he loves so deeply and so fiercely and so tenderly. And all this rests on the reality that God is faithful because when God reveals his name to Moses, what? He decides to highlight his steadfast commitment to remain faithful to, right? He's faithful to his people, but he's faithful with his people. And so my encouragement to you today, Anchor Church, is this, is to remember that God will never leave us nor forsake us. To remember that this same God who is about to move to liberate his people from oppression is the same God who is moving today. That this is the same God who is calling you to, right now. He's calling you, this is, I know I'm sitting up here preaching. I I know this, I know that you're hearing me. I get this, and I am not God by any stretch of anyone's imagination. But let me say this, that right now as you hear me, this is the Lord through me using this time, this place right now to say that He is calling you to partner with Him in the renewal of all things. And to to see this world being renewed, all the things, all the ways that we see this world broken, all the ways that we see our own lives shattered, he's calling us to partner with him in making whole. He is faithful. He is with you. You need to know this. And so what I want to do now is I want to pray for you that you would take up this calling that he has on each and every single one of us to partner with us the way that he's calling Moses to partner with him in the liberation of a people, to bring renewal, to bring grace, to bring favor, to bring God's presence. We are all now carrying with us God's presence and he's calling us to mediate that presence to the world that desperately needs it. And so I wanna pray now that you would wake up to this fact that you would sign up to this, as it were. Um, As we see in the story here today, uh, God doesn't force Moses. There's an argument. He goes back and forth. he He gives him reasons. But Moses is invited. And Moses, after exhausting all the reasons why he doesn't want to do it, says yes. And so I pray that even now, as you think about all the reasons why you haven't Follow Jesus. All the reasons why you may have compromised and tried to keep one foot in the world and one foot in the new body of Christ, living according to your old humanity, even as you are called to live in your new humanity. Even as we we may have compromised there, even as we may have put it off, even as we may have thought about 10 objections to not following Jesus, I pray now that the Holy Spirit would work in your life, in your community, in your home, to break down these barriers, to break down these walls, and that you would, with a full heart, participate in the mission of God. Let me pray for us now. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. Mm. We thank you that you are here. We thank you that you are there. We thank you that you are in our yesterday, in our today, and in our tomorrow. And we thank you for this promise that you are the same today and tomorrow. The same God of yesterday. The same faithful God. And I pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would so powerfully work in these people's lives. That they would wake up to grace. That they would wake up. That they they would even just be tired. Just tired. Tired of trying to figure it out on their own. Tired of constantly being frustrated. And that they would come home. And that they would find deep soul rest. And that they would look forward with us to this deep rest that will be ushered in as the new creation is ushered. But you call us to partner with you. In all of these things. And so I pray for those, Lord, now that you would bring them near. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. And amen. I hope and I pray that you would reach out to us, letting us know if this is you, if you've decided to embark on a journey with Jesus. Uh, We'd love to journey with you there. Uh, But one of the things that we do as a family together each week is that we take uh, bread and juice or or wine and, and crackers. Um, and we break bread and we, we drink that juice or wine in remembrance of who Jesus is. Jesus said that he left us something to do to remember him by, not just mentally, uh, but physically, viscerally, that we would break the bread and, and that that would symbolize for us that it would help us to remember that God in Christ, his flesh was torn for us and that his blood was spilled for us. And so I invite you as we transition into a time of singing, a time of worship, uh, that you would pause for a moment and and think about and reflect with your family or or friends, whomever you're living with, or even by yourself, knowing that you are never alone, but that God is with you and that you would reflect on this reality that God is near and that God is calling all of us to participate in his life, to participate in his death, and to participate in his mission. We love you, bless you, and we'll see you next week.